This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner and Representative Barbara Lee will today talk about how the Black Church has helped to build electoral power. This is a sacred story, and they'll tell it that way with a, with a clear eye toward the practical lessons for right now. Representative Lee is a senior member of the House of Representatives. She was chair of the Black Caucus. She is now chair of the Foreign Affairs Appropriations Subcommittee. She'll be joining us by phone. She was going to be on the video conference, but then uh, the House called an unexpected vote. And so she'll be joining us by phone on her way to vote. Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner is head of the Skinner Institute, also co-convener of the National African-American Clergy Network. She's a spiritual advisor to members of Congress and a policy and political advisor to many clergy across the country. In the elections of 2020, she recruited 600 clergy to serve as chaplains at polling stations where there was reason to fear voter suppression or violence. In the end, um, there was very little violence at polling stations in 2020, and that is partly due to the good work of Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner. Well, thank you. First of all, do not hold me accountable for what the members of Congress do. I just pray with them, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I obviously have very little influence, all right? Uh, But I am really grateful to be here. And um, I will say at the outset that it is impossible to kind of tell you how excited I am that you're interested. When I was at Berkeley, nobody was interested in God, let alone the black church. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, and I was an agnostic at the time. So that's that's my crowd. I was one mother's prayer away from joining the black Panther party. So, you know, I am like really saved. Okay. Uh, Thank you, David, first of all, because you've been just such a friend in this whole journey. Um, that the Black church is not uh, a perfect institution. It has a lot of flaws. So when we talk about its power, it doesn't mean that there aren't areas to fix. And when we talk about the Black church, we're really talking about Protestant churches that basically minister to mostly African-Americans, that they're not all the same in politics, they're not all the same in liturgy, they're not all the same in in the ways they they worship or, or, or view the world. They're not all politically active, but as a whole, when we talk about the Black church, that's what we mean. And when we talk about electoral politics, we're talking about how you leverage your authority, your power uh, on public policies. Ultimately, that's what you're talking about. And when you want to go deeper than that, you're talking about the purse. You're talking about who gets what part of the federal budget. Okay, that's what we're really talking about. So over the next uh, couple of hours, First, we're going to talk about the historical perspective because we're really talking about a 402-year history boiled down 
I actually need to give you a couple of pictures because it's so hard to boil this down, but I will do my very best. So for the next half an hour, we'll just talk about the historical perspective and I'll give you a way of thinking about it. Um, then we'll, so that period will be from 1619 to really almost the civil rights movement when that period that we call the first reconstruction. And then we'll talk uh, secondly about this, this, what we call the, the modern day civil rights movement uh, that period is called the second reconstruction, reconstruction meaning reconstructing the way that African-Americans are included as full citizens in America. That's what that means. Um, and that will take us all the way up almost to the Obama at a period when we meet, say like 315. And then um, we'll talk with, hopefully with Barbara Lee, I've got my phone on, she, they're voting. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she owes me one, I owe her one. So, <laughs> um, so I'm praying that I just, she texted me and said, they're still, they're still on. Uh, Cause I want to talk to her. She's a Congresswoman for that district. She's got a lot to say uh, about how she engages and her philosophy, her underlying, what, what moves her to be in the space that she's in, the most, one of the most progressive members of Congress, what are her guiding spiritual or political principles? We should ask her that. And then we'd like to end thinking about where you are and what, uh, what would you do if you had an assignment now to engage the black church, I hope you will uh, want to after I talk to you uh, and so that you bring whatever you bring and add even more power. Oh, this is a great time to talk about it. I mean, today they're seating a, uh, a jury for the George Floyd, uh, you know, murder. I, it was murder. Uh, trial. And we just finished two months out of a takeover of the government effort, a coup attempt. I mean, we're in that period that I will talk about. Uh, and we're in the middle of three pandemics, a health, a race, and a and a, a, um, what we call poverty pandemic, because there's still millions of Americans still in poverty, notwithstanding the COVID relief. So when I talk about this period, this historical period, I think about it not in terms of, I don't use the word slavery, because people didn't decide to come over on a trip, <laughs> enslaved. All countries had slaves with very few exceptions in the world history. But American enslavement, which is what I use, was more brutal and inhumane than almost any other. And you'll see it as I talk about, about it. They called it the peculiar institution. Because the Africans brought over were birthed in a country that was the cradle of civilization, one that gave us math and science and engineering uh, long before this other countries were even formed with people who were elevated uh, to leadership in their own country, finding themselves in a country where the goal was not just to have chattel slavery, but to erase every evidence of any culture, language, marriage, family, that which makes us human. And so that that has been probably what I call, and Jim Wallace firstly original in his book called The America's Original Sin. It's an original sin because it violates every tenet of major religions that of the inherent dignity and worth and value 
of the human person, doesn't matter what race or color uh, they are, that they're created for this dignity. And, and everything about slavery, not to mention structural racism, violates that. So you don't have to be politically progressive just to understand that everybody has the right to be treated with basic dignity. A lot of what I uh, will reference came from uh, Henry Louis Gates. I, I think you, if you haven't seen it, go on YouTube. He did a four hour series that I think is the best. I, I'm sort of a, a little miniature historian. He's like major, <laughs> he's a real historian. Uh, and I thought his piece, his, his treatment of, of the black church, even though he's not deeply rooted in the black church, was the best ever. Uh, probably not since uh, C. Eric Lincoln's treatment of the black church. But he talks about it as an invisible institution long before it became bricks and mortars church. Why was it invisible? It was invisible because it was, it was forbidden for blacks who were enslaved to gather as a quote church. So they had what they called arbor, or they called it a praise houses that were deeply buried in the woods. And what happened in those were, that's where some resistance began. That's where people began to trade stories after worship about who was sold and uh, who escaped and what happened to people's children. It was a gathering place, in other words. He called it the invisible church. And that invisible church happened all the way until 1773, 132 years later, before the very first church was ever built, what we call physical church. I thought it was interesting that uh, most of the historians talked about that invisible church really as setting the foundation for what we call the black church. So, you know, as I said to you, it's not a black church. It is like, it's a culture. It's a, it's a way of, of being in a world. Okay. And, and Christianity was not the major way that Africans came here. Uh, it was not, it, many of them had come from countries where they had engaged God so many different ways. Uh, some is, is from, from Islam. Um, and it was said that in the 1500s, the Spanish controlled Florida, where places where African slaves were brought, where Catholicism was practiced. So you had the practice of Catholicism. And slaves did not take, the enslaved did not take to Christianity. Why? Because everything about what they were taught by the slaveholders was inconsistent with their being held bondage. <laughs> So there was a disconnect until they began, because even, even Bibles were all of the passages about Exodus were in many Bibles. And in the African-American Museum, if you ever get a chance to go, once we get past the States, there are Bibles with all of the Exodus passages exed out. Uh, so anything that spoke to freedom. Instead, they were taught all the passages about docility and and, and, and being peaceful and the like. But, so, but you had the beginning of this freedom struggle that sort of, that erupted through two means. One was the, of all, you wouldn't think about this, but the white evangelical, uh, what you call the revivalist, the George Whitfields, uh, those who did traveling uh, revivals 
including on plantations. And it was something about it, that probably, and many of them were Methodists, many of them were Baptists. So it's not a, it's not a wonder why the majority of African-Americans have bought into the Methodist and the Baptist uh, religion because the, they found in the revivalists the kind of freedom that they didn't experience. He said, they preach like we feel. And <laughs> they taught, they preached a freedom. And for the first time, they're hearing what the slaveholders would not uh, teach. This was in about 1750. Now, what happened after that is that because what was happening is that you had uh, just an awakening. That was in a period. I mean, you think about the, the secret places where they're meeting, where they're carrying through the stories, who escaped, who, who didn't make it, uh, about, and, and, and Black people who could read were now preaching to them in the language that they understood. So they were getting Jesus, not Christianity. They were getting the freedom stories of the gospel but not the Christianity of the slaveholder. You had that, you had the tent revivals. And then you had a number of enslaved people in the, in the late 1700s, like Richard Allen. This is the beginning of the formal black church. Uh, Richard Allen was an enslaved young man born in around the Philadelphia area, bought his freedom and joined a white Methodist church he and several of his friends who became, quote, preachers um, at the same time as the American Revolutionary War envisioned Black people who were enslaved connecting with whites who were seeking their freedom. And that was their first thought and vision about a, a multiracial, multicultural society of people all seeking freedom. It never happened. Not only did it not happen, but when they tried to go to pray with and pray in the space that whites prayed in in the Methodist church, they were literally kicked out from the prayer meetings. It, 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 the stories are that in mass, there were many more black people in the Methodist church than there were whites. When they left in mass, that started what is now the AME church. In, in, in late 1700, Georgia, with Richard Allen as their major leader. The first female bishop of the Amy Church said, the Black church was not founded on theological differences with whites. It was totally racial differences. And that led Dr. King to say that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is, uh, is a time of apartheid in America, because that is the time in today of all the places that are still segregated, it is the churches. So let me just say for the sake of understanding uh, this period, I want you to envision this, that there is a cycle from 1619, and it'll, go, it'll carry on to everything else I say. There's a cycle of oppression followed by resistance followed by advancement. Every advancement that we talk about came out of resistance. Most of the resistance rooted in the black church. I'm not saying there weren't other organizations. I'm saying the majority of the organized resistance, why? Because people owned the church. <laughs> they could decide when to meet. It was their place to meet. It was why a lot of black churches were burned. 
So what I want to talk to you now about is I want you to think historically. I don't want you to think about, I want you to think about that cycle. And everything I'm going to tell you now, it, it, it follows the cycle from oppression, the idea that African people, it probably could be said the same about Latinos or Asians or all non-white people, have no right to full citizenship in America. That's still the case, okay? So if that is the case, we have to start with what that looks like, the oppression, the belief that, that any gains that people, a non-whites make, take away from whites. That's still the view in America. So you had from 1641, let me just share, you know, what I mean by the oppression followed by resistance followed by advancement. So formally, African-American, African people came to this country in 1619, but there was no formal enslavement. It wasn't until Massachusetts put in slave codes. And so we're talking about 1641, really, but 220 some years. So you had 500 of all of the slaves that left, all of those who were bought and sold, let's say in Africa, there were 12 million, 10 million made it. Only 500,000 made it to America. So out of 500,000, that, so that's the oppression. You have 500 human persons sold like cattle, like animals on auction blocks all over the country, this country. Um, the resistance was black protests and, and not, not so much joined by whites at that point, but it was really black protests through that church network, that secret network that I talked about. Through that back, they called it, they called it the praise houses in the woods behind where you couldn't really see it, where people met late at night. And you had the advancement then of the formation of black people still loving this country more than it loved them joining the Revolutionary Army, <laughs> believing that if we join the army, some kind of way we'd be like everybody else. Uh, white allies were there, but not in such big numbers. You had the fugitive slave law so that even if somebody escaped from a slave state to a free state, they were sent back. You had the Supreme Court, every institution in America bought into enslavement of humans. But look at the resistance. You had the resistance of Denmark Vesey, who headed an AME congregation, but you know, was said to be leading the result, revolt. So he was he was executed. Nat Turner was a preacher. <laughs> People think of him as just a, as a as a revolutionary. He was a preacher, an enslaved man who organized uh, 40 others to go with him to kill. They killed about 60 white men and, and women and children were executed. And then you had Afri you had the resistance of the Underground Railroad uh, with people like Harriet Tubman as part of it as conductors. The churches were central. Now those black churches that started in 1773 were central drop-off points. They were the basements and the under, under porches where people bodies were held until people could get to their next destination. You had Frederick Douglass. Harriet Tubman, John Brown, and others. But the, what was the advancement during that period? From 1794 to 1865, you had the Civil War. You had a fight for either 
keeping bodies, keeping people chattel slavery or not. That's what the North-South battle was about. The South never got their, their texts, I guess. They never got the email because they really don't, have not been told yet that they lost, okay? And you had the Emancipation Proclamation. So you had the oppression of all of those enslaved. You had the resistance of all the, all the slave revolts and the resistance and rebellion. A lot of it run through the church, the Underground Railroad through the church, and you had the advancement of ending up in the Civil War. The church was a key part of that. You had another major, I think, breakthrough in, I guess, for Christianity or for the Jesus people in the Second Great Awakening, where you had another wave of revivals where, again, Black people were not so much into white churches, but they were into this gospel. But there was another uh, great wave, and Black churches became probably the mark. Uh, they were burned. Uh, lynchings took place in a major way. So that was a period from uh, from 1641 you know, until about the Civil War. So what happened at the Civil War? What was the, what was the, the major uh, result, positive result of that? But you had even during that, what they call the Reconstruction Codes. This was probably what we're still living through now, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. 13th Amendment ended slavery. 14th Amendment created citizenship. 15th Amendment gave men, Black men, not women, the right to vote. Women, Black women didn't get it until white women got it in the 1900s. But you had the same cycle. You had the, uh, in, in, from the 1863, 1877, that period was the most, I would say that is a period where Black progress has not ever been matched. It was a period when you had uh, the rise of African-Americans now able to vote, and you had up to, the historians say, 2,000 Black people in office, Black men, not Black women, okay? After those amendments, where you had Black people voting for the first time, you had Black colleges form, uh, Howard, Hampton, Florida A&M. You had hundreds of Black colleges that were church-based. Remember, the church was never out of the freedom movement. It was never, there was never anything that happened of any positive power or advancement that did not include the black church. You had many of those who ran for office in Congress. Uh, you had a, you know, a governor in South Carolina, you had others were either preachers or were connected to church. And you had, during that period, uh, you had the most, I would say, progressive advancement of black people that there's ever been. Businesses, newspapers form, but all of them were a form of resistance. They were not just a form of development, because remember, we were still in a period of rigid segregation. Voting had just happened, but the, we have a society that is totally separate, black and, and white. Uh, so the black church becomes the place for dignity to happen. It comes the place where people could be maids or butlers during the week, but they are, they're deacons on Sunday. They may be preachers on Sunday. So all of the, uh, all of the, all of the, the reconstruction uh, progress that was made was just amazing. But it was immediately followed by oppression. Remember, oppression 
resistance, advancement. And the minute advancement happens, oppression immediately follows. So what happened following that were the black codes, codes that said you couldn't be out after a certain time if you were if you were enslaved, if you couldn't show you had papers that you were uh, that you were working. Uh, 2000 lynchings took place, white mobs began to run amok, almost without uh, any control by the police. You had the Oklahoma massacre taking place. This was all after reconstruction. This is after all of these advancements. Remember the cycle, oppression followed by resistance. We talked about the resistance, followed by these advancements, immediately followed by oppression. So, so that that takes us through that cycle followed all the way up to the time of the civil rights movement. The Voting Rights Act basically required every state to take to the federal government, Justice Department, its plan for voting. So no more counting jelly beans in a jar to get your right to vote. No more paying poll taxes that people had to pay. All of a sudden, everybody has uh, in the law a right to vote. So now let's look at the civil rights movement and see what's happened. As a result of that, people are back able to vote. As a result of that, Black registration goes sky high. Uh, Black churches become the place where souls to the polls take place. All of the campaigns uh, begin to take place. But I want to take you back to the cycle again so that you really get this picture of what happened. So the oppression of this period that preceded and that includes now the civil rights era, the, the second reconstruction uh, that we might celebrate as all great. But look at the oppression that that preceded it. Emmett Till is killed in 1954, 15-year-old boy beaten to almost to death. Um, it, it sparked the Black community because it was on the news in the newspapers for a long time. I was very, very young, and I remember that. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer, a civil rights person from the church, was beaten severely for trying to vote register people in Mississippi. Megger Evers is killed in his driveway, a man who's connected to the church and through the NACP. Martin Luther King assassinated, is assassinated during this period. This is the oppression. I want you to get the cycle. Okay. That brings us up to where we are now. Rodney King is brutally beaten by police. This is the beginning of police-sponsored killings and attacks of Black people. You have the escalation of white resistance uh, movement and the KKK that had kind of gone underground is now resurging and recruiting even in high schools. But the last thing is the one I want you to remember. And in 2000, there was an announcement by the Census Department, US Census Department, that by the year 2045, there would be no white majority. I think that that was the announcement of announcements. That was like uh, Harry and Meghan last night (laughs) on Oprah. (laughs) That was like, okay, Queen Mother. (laughs) I got chills when I heard that announcement because I said, OMG. OMG. 
Because when white people get mad, they start burning up things. Okay, <laughs> so so this is the white fear that we that led to January the sixth. It's the same. It's not unrelated. Okay, please be really clear that if you believe that no one else has a right to be fully citizens and fully human, and they people get rights, then you have a right to take them away. That's your privilege. Okay, but that. 2000 census is what is sparked the fear. But I'm going to talk about the resistance before I get to the advance. So the resistance is that Mamie Till, Emma Till's mother, the church lady, decides to have an open casket funeral. This is what led to Rosa Parks staying on the bus that led to a 26 year old Martin Luther King, who was on his way to become just a what? A preacher at Dexter, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. <laughs> In, um, in Alabama to become catapulted to the spokesperson for the movement. She holds this open casted funeral and it's, it's posted in all the black papers across the country. And all of a sudden there's now this spirit of we've got to do something. The Brown versus Board of Education uh, Supreme Court decision comes down. The church-sponsored boycott for 381, 341 days, Black people decided not to ride the bus so they could ride it in the front, okay? Um, Dr. King gives his I Have a Dream speech at, at the Lincoln Memorial, and he joins before he dies the sanitation workers. The Congressional Black Caucus is formed during those days. Shirley Chisholm runs for president. I just want to help you to understand what resistance looks like, okay? And Jesse Jackson runs for president to say, you don't have to be white to run for president. And let's talk about the advancement. Dr. King arose as the spokesperson for a movement that has never been matched in this country, it's gone global, okay? Little Rock Nine in a great Arkansas high school, Fannie Lou Hamer founds the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Now, why is this important? Because the, despite the fact that Black people seem to be joined at the hip with the Democratic Party, this has not always been a good marriage. <laughs> In fact, you know, it, it, it really is, it was just a disaster because from the very beginning, white Southerners decided that they were going to hold on to um, their idea of what enslavement looked like forever and ever. And so it was the Republicans, Lincoln and the Republicans that black people connected to until Truman and until Eisenhower, until Truman integrated the, the uh, military. You had a Civil Rights Act of 64 passed. I'm talking about the advancement. I'm talking about the 1965 Voting Rights Act that we're dealing with even today. Talking about the 1968 Fair Housing Act um, and the federal MLK holiday. Okay, but those were immediately followed by more white resistance. Okay, do you understand? So I could bring you up to the present day, but I'm saying that is the cycle that we're still living through. The civil right, the church has continued to be the meeting space. Fannie Lou Hamer becomes like a, a shero of her time. Uh, she's sparking more black women in the church to get involved. Why are black women today 
more powerful than any other group of people in politics? <laughs> it started in the Black church. They may not have been able to be in the pulpit. It is the problem with Black men. Okay, we still have a whole lot of conversation. Now. <laughs> We're not having them on this call. Okay, but because we didn't have the power in the pulpit, we took it in other ways. So black women organized. We used every bit of our energy, whether we were hairdressers or we worked in a cleaners or we were a teacher or we were a nurse, people organized. There was more organizing going on. There was a thing that called Souls to the Pole where black pastors were taking the whole church after the service on Sunday. Why are they trying to now cut out Sunday voting in Georgia? Because that's how the black turnout was produced uh, a democratic victory in the Senate. Uh, what you have now is uh, now black power being cemented in many ways, uh, even beyond all of the white resistance. Uh, black people are seeing and feeling their power in ways they had not felt before. And what emerges out of that um, is what is called is the, the um, Black liberation theology. So remember I said earlier that Black people appropriated and adapted the gospel for themselves, not the state-sponsored, not the empire, not the church of the empire. Theology basically had been taught from the upside. Black liberation theology says all theology has to start on the side streets of life. You have to start at the bottom. That's all it is. You preach about what Jesus preached about, the woman at the well. You preach about, you know, you preach about the people who are left behind. But Black liberation theology also played into the right to vote, played into our right to freedom. Vote is a freedom. Vote is a resistance. Vote is a form of resistance. It's not just an exercise of citizenship. It is an act of resistance. So nothing... Then the other thing that added, I believe, to the power of the Black church and, and it's, a, it's leveraging is secular organizations, now sororities and fraternities and NACP and Urban League and national organizations began to join in with the Black church on souls to the poles and the like. And then you had the rise of the Black preachers. You had individual personalities, whether it's a T.D. Jakes today or... Adam Clayton Powell yesterday, or you had, you know, Jesse Jackson at one time, um, you had the rise of the black preacher. This is not unlike the black preacher who went from plantation to plantation, right? Uh, in, the, in those secret houses. I want you to remember all of this is connected to the secret places of worship uh, and the power of the preacher. Why is the preacher powerful? Because he or she can read, he or she has got the word of God, he or she is preaching uh, freedom to a people who are not free. Uh, and then you have, uh, you have the, uh, the continued power. Now, white allies, let me just talk about white allies. Uh, that's probably my phone, but I've done the best I can. Um, <laughs> white allies were in and out. Like today, for example, right after George Floyd was killed, 
you had 56% of white Americans, this is the surveys, right? This is not me, uh, supporting the protest and supporting Black Lives Matter, even after they were vilified. Today, I don't know if it's because of defund the police or what, that support is cut in half. (laughs) Let's go back to the civil rights movement. Let's go back. Okay, let's go back even further to the abolitionist movement, which started, because I want you to see the cold context. Okay, I want you to see the historical context. The abolitionist movement started about 1830. Okay, this is about 30 years or so before the emancipation. So there were a lot of years of no serious white support from 1641, right? I just want you to see that. Like maybe there were individual whites, but there's no organized white support. That support was critical when it started. That was the Underground Railroad, abolitionists, et cetera. It was crucial. But it but but fast forward to the civil rights movement. In 1965, you had mainline white churches, no evangelical churches. But it was the minute the discussion became Black economic power that whites fled the civil rights movement almost in mass. King didn't change. Andy Young didn't change. Um, he was still for nonviolence. Um, John Lewis was still for nonviolence, but whites fled almost en masse. Fast forward to today, it's almost the same thing, okay? So it's kind of a wonder that African-Americans now feel that um, that some kind of way the uh, white evangelicals, for white evangelicals, the operative word is white, not evangelical. And that some kind, it's it's, it's t- very confounding, confusing, whatever. Um, this time, so it, with the exception of our now our linkage to Latino Americans, which is just beginning, just beginning to develop more partnerships there. Not as much with Indigenous Americans, and certainly not hardly with the Asian Americans. Unfortunately, um, we're not finding a lot of support from the white church community. Um, And we can't quite understand how you can say you love Jesus and not, how can I say I love Jesus and not be wounded by the child, the brown child in the cage or the Asians who's being spit on today because the president used Kung flu or some other pejorative. So in other words, so I think the question that's challenged that we have in this cycle is that Black Americans really feel like we can't really depend on anybody but ourselves. Barbara Lee. Okay. Okay, so this is a, a class, you know, of combination, I want to say social justice and Jesus people. I don't know how that works, but, <laughs> but some kind of way they're together. And uh, you are, there's some Bread for the World people who are connected with your office uh, in the in 13. And I guess the question, I mean, you all know Barbara Lee is the most progressive member of Congress and 
Maya Angelou probably describes her best. She said the word courage. She says, uh, without that virtue, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. So that's how we see you, whether it's on the war or global poverty or whatever. And if you all need any more about her, you can Google her. But I'm just saying that if there's any progressive issue on in the Congress, she's in it. She's in it. She's ahead of it. She's supporting it. Poverty caucus or whatever. And so I guess what I wanted to ask you uh, a question because we're struggling with the issue of how do you get um, how do you get uh, uh, a, a whites who say they are committed in their faith, you know, you know, a lot of them uh, to also um, identify with the struggles of the poor, whether they're Asians or black or his or Latinx or whatever. How do you get them to see that that's their struggle too because of the faith that they hold? Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for inviting me to be with you. Thank you, Reverend Skinner. And, um, a friend from the day, I mean, the, the real day. <laughs> and thanks uh, <laughs> for understanding my, you know, we were to be off today, so I was gonna be able to be seated and, and do this through a, a Zoom link, but I'm driving now. I have to go to the Hill to vote, you know, because of the American Rescue Plan, uh, the, the schedule was totally changed. So I apologize for uh, how, how I have to do this. But I just have to say um, that, you know, I, uh, first of all, you all know I'm a woman of faith, I'm a Christian. And uh, I believe that, uh, Jesus Christ and Barbara, you mentioned how do you put both of those together? Your your Christian, your religion, and and also social justice. Well, I always, you know, for me, Jesus Christ was a revolutionary. He was a social justice activist, and his life on this earth. Can I, can I just stop and shout for a moment because? <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. From day one, I mean, I went to Catholic school as a as a child for eight years, and I always thought uh, Jesus as as a true uh, person on this earth who wanted transformational change to end injustices, and so that's how personally my religion has always been reflected in my life's work. And with regard to how you accept, uh, how you how you encourage others because i'm telling you it is really a a, a challenge to uh, pray with these people uh, and i'll just share on january 6th we were uh after this attempted coup by white supremacists and domestic terrorists we were in an undisclosed location and uh some of those who vote against every issue that uh you all stand for and know that the bible and our religion requires got up and prayed and not wearing masks and voting against the um seating the electoral college seating of the president who was duly elected in a fair and free election and they got up and prayed and i had to come to grips with now do i pray with these you don't know what i wanted to call them <laughs> or, or do i we we get it you get, get it, it. Do my own prayer. So I think for some, and I always have to have hope that we can uh, convince others to do justice by people who uh, need help. Some some of them are so jaded by white supremacy and white nationalism that uh, I'm not sure how they get how we get past that because they 
the slavery, remember, was uh, the Bible was used for uh, enslaving Africans. And when I'm in Ghana and, and Barbara, you know, in, in uh, Senegal, yep. we go to the slave uh, castles, the dungeons where Africans were held by church people, by the Dutch, by those who enslaved our people who were praying to God every night. Uh, and so that reconciliation for me uh, has not, I don't know if it will ever take place. We have to keep hope alive, but certainly the underpinnings of slavery, uh, I think, reflect are reflected today in systemic racism and the lack of concern for the poor and the oppressed and those who have been marginalized because they truly believe, I think, in some respects that, that Christ's life and religion was not really about us. I think this is so powerful, the House Foreign Ops Subcommittee. Um, how do you use that for bringing about ec- economic stability? You've got a global concern about hunger and poverty. How do you think you can use that? Sure. Well, you know, and, and the Appropriations Committee and, and also the subcommittee I chair is the state foreign ops and related organizations that really provide funding for all of our development and diplomatic uh, initiatives throughout the world, everything except defense. So it's a very powerful committee. Uh, And one of the things that I've been trying to do, and I've talked to the White House as well as my Senate uh, companion in the Senate, which is Senator Coons, about how we, hold on one second. Okay, how we actually uh, go for, and I, this is called the 150 account, which is the account which I manage. And that means raising resources because there's an imbalance between uh, defense diplomacy and development. And so the first thing I'm doing is trying to get an, a bump up for the 150 account so that we could put more money into global health, into hunger, into famine relief, into agricultural development, training uh, farmers throughout the world to be able to use their land to produce food. Right. And uh, all of the issues that we should be doing that have been missing in action, we've never fully funded our development and diplomacy initiatives. I mean, most people in this country believe that we do 25% of our foreign aid when it's really less than 1%. Wow. And so what I'm trying to do is, and I'm glad you asked me that, question, Reverend Skinner, is to raise awareness in the public here in the United States about the importance of our global initiatives, because what as this pandemic has shown us, what affects one affects all. And this is a very small world. And we need to be concerned about our brothers and sisters, wherever they are in the world. Uh, and if you can't see it from a humanitarian point of view, look at it from a national security point of view. And so I am making the argument to the Republicans on my committee, and I believe we'll find some common ground in uh, using the national security argument, because if we help those in need abroad, we know that the seeds of terrorism are sown in despair. Uh, You know, we could actually uh, strengthen our national security by using diplomacy and development in a way that's never been used before. And finally, I'll just say there have been many countries and continents that have been neglected uh, for, you know, since the beginning. And that's mm-hmm. Africa and the Caribbean. You don't hear much about mm-hmm. our foreign policy and our foreign assistance and development programs going into the West Indies, the Caribbean. And so I'm making the Caribbean and, as Trump called Africa, uh, 
the S-hole countries, I'm trying to make those regions that have been totally neglected uh, a priority again in our funding priorities. And uh, so we're gonna we're gonna do a good job, and it's gonna be an uphill battle. But it's gonna take a lot of help from all of you on the phone, on this call, and in this class and meeting because public pressure is everything. And so we're gonna have to educate the public about the need and the necessity for uh, increasing foreign assistance and why and how it really is a, a mission that religious and and I'm telling you, I was able to get all of our global aid initiatives. Those were my bills that I worked with President Bush on, but it was my legislation and my ideas. And we were able to bring Republicans along and it was because of the faith community throughout the world who really helped us bring Republicans and those who were naysayers and those who weren't quite sure that they should support addressing global HIV and AIDS. It was the faith community that really paid, played an important role in getting those initiatives completed. Congressman Woman Lee, this is Mark Richardson, and I just, it's an honor to welcome you to this class. I'm one of the two school, a dean of one of the two schools that uh, sponsored this course, the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, part of the Graduate Theological Union, jointly sponsored with uh, Dean Brady uh, of the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University. And I just, uh, first and foremost, I'm proud that you are our representative. But what you're saying today is extraordinarily important. And I think there's common ground between what uh, Barbara Williams Skinner is saying and what you're telling us, how do we sustain, well, not just the public pressure, but sustain our passions around something that seems so palpably obvious about liberation that comes out of our religious tradition. So thank you for emphasizing that from the international perspective, what Bar Barbara Williams Skinner has been uh, enunciating from within our own history. Let, let me just say how glad I am to be in my alma mater with you uh, because, you know, uh, Go Bears is my alma mater. <laughs> I'm and I actually uh, worked on a project at the uh, Graduate Theological, Theological Union in the 70s, GTU, when Reverend Dr. Hosiah Williams. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Called the uh, Center for Urban Black Studies, and yes. I, I coordinated the National Black uh, Studies Arts Program for uh, the GTU during that period. Oh, thanks for reminding me. Of that. That's great. Ask uh, DJ uh, Richardson. You're with the Bread for the World. If you have a question of the Congresswoman, based on the work you all are doing, I don't. I just have nothing but congratulations and salutations, and just let Barbara know that Alan Temple has got your back. Uh, that's right. <laughs> right. And let me take bread for the world. It's phenomenal. You all helped me do so much uh, work here on Capitol Hill because this is not about Barbara Lee. This is about bread for the world and all of you who, who push the envelope to make us do this. Black Church has been uh, my guiding light, first of all, but it's been that support and that uh, that organization. I won't say organization, but it's been that rock in our community that has not only helped myself but others run for office and make sure that we stay on point in terms of our overall uh, agenda. We do, uh, and of course, given the church's nonprofit status, we all have to be cognizant of that, but we could do nonpartisan voter registration and uh, people in their own time could do the work through social justice ministry. But I tell you one thing that the black church uh, 
continues to do that really has lifted me up and helped me is that, you know, feeding the hungry, uh, providing housing for those who are unsheltered, right. uh, providing health care for those who need health care. So the mission and the, the goals of, of the Black church from day one have been goals that I embrace as a member of Congress. And I uh, get my, in terms of my inspiration, uh, I, the scriptures, and I'm always so um, happy, Barbara, to get your scriptures every day, you know, to really lean on the Lord in a lot of ways. Because when you're in this hostile place, which it is, uh, it, especially now, uh, you you need kind of that source that that religion that that uh, anchor, and so it's both on a spiritual level that the black church has has kept me going, but on a very practical level, it does the work uh, of justice that uh, we all know. Dr. King, I mean Reverend Warnock, Nile. We have a minister and a black minister in the Senate, and uh, it's it's just um, who we are. We come from the church, and the church has been. Uh, really our salvation for those of us who are elected in oftentimes hostile kinds of territories that we have to navigate for the people you know with especially with the donald trump who, who dug in uh, on the the evil the dark side of life <laughs> and politics uh people are afraid and so these relationships are fine personally but when it comes to public kinds of relationships some are afraid of losing their elections and so they will not be true to really and a lot of them not be true to who they are i i won't go to the prayer breakfasts anymore you know we have a prayer barb you know the prayer breakfast yeah on the hill yeah every month yeah or so you know i went a couple of times uh they're bipartisan i was probably one of maybe two or three african-americans after and they were nice but i don't go anymore because those those members who are in the prayer breakfast praying come right out and vote against my people and vote against the poor and vote against what would be just and righteous but um so you have to navigate that uh i have a lot of relationships with a lot of republicans even on my committee and i talk to them they talk to me so privately it's one thing but publicly boy when when the deal goes down they're going to be hardcore and right now donald trump and that's the reality of it well how do you not get cynical i mean you seem to be upbeat all the time you seem to be hopeful where does that come from that comes from being a black woman in America who's been through so much. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a setup. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a setup. I, I'm I, sorry. That was a setup. Like so many black women, black people have been. You can't get cynical. We would never have been gotten as far as we've gotten if we got cynical or tired. What's that song? I ain't no way tired. I've come too far from where I started from. Nobody told me the road would be easy. I didn't come this far for him to leave me or whatever the words say, Barbara. You know that song. I know the song. <laughs> so that's how I navigate this. Uh, and I think if you're cynical or get cynical or get burned out or let these people do you in uh, in terms of who you are as being a child of God that trying to do this work, then you need to leave and go do something else. So I'm going to always be, be hopeful and be joyous and um, be angry at the same time. Uh, my last question is on the Black Caucus. Um, what do you think the CBC, how do we hold Biden accountable for racial equity? I mean, he wouldn't be there without the Black women, Black women, forget the Black vote, Black women. Yeah. Um, well, and absolutely. and so he may think having Kamala Harris there is enough, but we know it's not. So how do how does the Black Caucus, with all of his power, hold him accountable for racial equity? 
Well, we're working right now on doing just that. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of our overall agenda, we're working each and every day saying uh, this is what we had promises made, promises must be kept. So and let me. Let me. I'm walking right now, Barbara. Okay. <laughs> okay. I just want one last ounce of you. What does racial equity look like to you? What would that be? What would be in existence? Okay. Well, right now, you know, I'm working on my truth racial healing transformation committee. We have to have this truth talent moment where descendants of those who were enslaved who are still. Um, dealing with systemic racism come forward and have a truth telling moment in this country to move forward to heal and transform. Like South Africa. Like South Africa. Okay. Over 40 countries did that. And they said they had reconciliation. We say transformation because there's none to reconcile in here. Hold on one second. Well, that's biblical. It's, re it's called restitution. <laughs> restitution. Okay. Yeah. Because the damage of the past has created the horrors of today. And so you've got to make up. And you got to repair the damage. And it's not about individuals are paying up. Individuals, this is about a system, a legal system of slavery that um, has led to mass incarceration, disparities of the healthcare system, the wage gap, all of those uh, manifestations of systemic racism that we know have to be uh, dealt with. Dr. Barbara William Skinner, you've been spectacular. Yes, you have. You've just gone two hours and it's gone so quickly. I don't know how you kept your energy up. Energy up. It's been wonderful. And we're grateful that you brought that. Uh, by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He hasn't failed us yet. That's how we do it. We learn Amen. a lot. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you very much. Yeah.